supposed to last. When does overtime start? Traditionally and worldwide, for all those decades, the service was two hours. If we started at one, it was over at three. God willing and the preacher shut up, but uh, at least that was the time that it was supposed to stop was three o'clock. Of course, we had sometimes special music. We had uh, a sermonette, which could last 15 or 20 minutes, uh, and then the sermon. So a sermon could easily last an hour and a half, hour and 20 minutes to an hour and a half, and still be on time quitting. So if we start here at 1, and we sing and we pray, and it's 10 or 15 after when I actually get into the sermon... Uh, if I quit at 2.15, that means I've only spoken for an hour. So it's not overtime at that time, really. Uh, I could go to 2.30 easily and not be overtime yet, according to the traditional way. Now, my feeling has always been that generally, if you're going to get something said, you probably ought to be able to say it in an hour. If you get, can't get it said in an hour, you're probably not going to get it said anyway. And uh, people can only concentrate so long. I suppose now that you're not watching TV much, uh, your mind isn't tuned for a uh, commercial break every three minutes. So maybe you can concentrate longer than you could when you watched a lot of television. Uh, I don't know. But uh, nonetheless... I try to stop about 2.15 generally is kind of my goal, and, and uh, once in a while I get wrapped up and I'm into something that I don't see uh, a need to quit right then, so I'll go over another 5 or 10 or 15 minutes to get the rest of that thought in. So that can happen, but I have an inner clock that kind of goes off after about an hour. Uh, and I look at the clock, and then I decide whether to wrap it up right then or, or finish whatever it is that I'm on. So don't feel too persecuted if I go uh, to 220 or 225 or even 230 once in a while. Uh, but that's, that's pretty much what, for the most part, ought to be. And we don't have a sermonette, so... Uh, that cuts down the length of time that the service really needs to be. Anyway, a, a couple of thoughts before we get back into sermon per se. You may be up and aware that we're in a very uh, severe drought. They're beginning to compare it to the 1920s and 30s. And in some places, uh, it's been 126 years since they had this severe drought in those areas. Now, they built the California reservoirs coming out of the Sierras to be able to contain enough water to sustain the state for five to seven years if drought conditions persist. Uh, they set it up that way on purpose as a buffer against a year or two or three, four-year drought, that they'd still have water to take care of everything. So that was the design. <clears throat> now, you might remember we had reports in 2019 
that Oroville Dam was in great danger of breaking, that the city of Sacramento and the whole Central Valley could be flooded, and the Oroville Dam did show signs of stress and was leaking, and all kinds of problems were developing there, and it didn't quite happen. Well, today, it could not happen, two years later. Uh, that lake is only, I think, if, if I recall the right one, about 43% full, uh, less than half its capacity. Now, if it was designed to last seven years, why, after it was busting the dam two years ago, and has continued to be that way as it went downhill since, why is it so low today? The state of California is releasing that water and letting it flow into the sea instead of holding it there for these drought years. And they're using the excuse of they're trying to save a thousand little salmon. Now, you've got millions of people dependent on that water and maybe a thousand little salmon depending on it. But they're releasing it and letting it go right out to sea. Do you think there's a conspiracy to cause drought and famine or not? Not only that one, but other reservoirs in the state. They're draining them on purpose and just letting the water run off. Little did we know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, that most of our problems with famine and disease would be designed by man against man. When I read that when I was a kid, I thought, well, God will shut off the water, and God will shut off this or that, and these conditions will happen. Now, to some degree, that is certainly true, and I do believe God's hand is in it. But they are modifying the weather, and they are releasing water on purpose, they're saying now that many of the farmers in the Central Valley, from which about 30% of our food comes from, uh, those farmers will be either cut off from irrigation water or re receive 5% of their allocation. 5% doesn't raise much, <laughs> and none doesn't raise anything. Now, On top of that, uh, Mike Adams, the, the health ranger, some of you are familiar with him. Uh, there was an article this morning posted on Steve Quayle's site that the Chinese communists and the U.S. government involved and so on are planning cyber attacks through the rest of this year. We've already seen some. Uh, the Colonial Pipeline, I think, was one. Uh, the biggest meat-producing packing plants in the world have been shut down. Uh, some of them may be back online now. But uh, we're seeing this happen. Now, he learned from an inside source within the government that they plan to attack through the rest of this year uh, our energy uh, situation, uh, transportation, 
finance, and the power grid. Now, serious attacks on those four things could bring this nation to its knees in a hurry and cause utter chaos and conflict, martial law, civil war, on and on it would go. Uh, transportation. They shut off the fuel, the trucks can't run. Nobody gets food. And nobody has food, for the most part, except a few preppers. They just shut it down. Uh, energy, well, there's your pipeline, plus other things they're going to do. Biden just canceled all the oil leases in Alaska. Uh, we were totally independent of having to import oil just, I think, last year. And now we'll be dependent on foreign oil again because we simply cannot produce enough without some of the equipment that they're shutting down. So energy is a target. Transportation, financial system, uh, they're going to try to get us switched over to cryptocurrency and digital money. And I saw a report from some store, somebody went into in the last day or two in a town in America, and it said, please forgive our slowness, nobody wants to work. The government is passing out enough money that nobody wants to work. And I've talked to some people locally who say we simply can't find employees. Their jobs, they've got jobs all over the place that are just begging for somebody to come work. And as long as they got unemployment and a stimulus check, why work? And the government is causing this on purpose to get people dependent upon the government so that you have to have help from the government to survive. Total dependency is what they're after. That way everyone will worship the beast. So that's just another sign of what's going on. Now in that article on the cyber war, oh, the power grid, what happens if the power grid here and there shuts down? No air conditioning, it's 100, 110, 115, 20 degrees in Phoenix or Palm Springs. What are you going to do? Can't survive in those circumstances very well. I've been out in, I don't know, 120 degree weather around Southern California and Southern Arizona at times. And I remember one day my air conditioner quit on the car. And I'm out trying to visit people. <laughs> with a 120-degree temperature. That was rough. You don't go long without water in that, those conditions. And cars even suck the sunlight in on top of it. So what do you do? Roll the windows down. It's already 120 outside, so it doesn't get to 130 in the car. Uh, if you're a dog, you die, I guess. I didn't put up with that too long till I headed home. <laughs> because... It was intolerable. Now, on top of that, this same article reported that there are ground troops already in the southern U.S. Uh, they're already, we've known that for years, really. There's been Russian soldiers in the 
uh, Smoky Mountains for a long time now in eastern Tennessee and other places. But they're spreading out and getting to be more of them, as well as in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California. And that there are hundreds of stealth drones already flying within this nation, controlled by foreign powers, gathering whatever information they want to gather, wherever they want to gather it. Now, here's one that ought to make your hair stand on end. There's a company called GH America Groups, the corporation. GH America sounds pretty USA, doesn't it? Well, it's a Chinese firm. And since 2015, they've been buying up whatever land they could find along the Texas-Mexico border. And to date, they've amassed 130,000 acres, which is 200 square miles approximately. Well, that could be a strip of land, say, is a rectangle 10 miles by 20 miles long, or however it's configured. Now, on that, they're currently, right now, building a 10,000-foot airstrip. The only thing that needs an airstrip nearly two miles long is a heavy-duty cargo plane, generally military cargo, is used with that kind of plane. Uh, they can ship plastic and Walmart stuff in containers on ships, but when you're moving war material in, uh, it's much easier to do it with those cargo planes, and that is right on the New Mexico, I mean, not New Mexico, but Mexico-Texas border. They don't even have to violate U.S. airspace to get onto their property on the border. They can fly through Mexico and sit down right there in Texas without going through any kind of customs or anything else. According to the reports, they're planning on building huge concentration camps there and using them as uh, incinerators to cook people like the Nazis did in Germany. So it's getting pretty grim. Now, he didn't put it this way, but I thought about it a little bit, and I thought, here you've got a space, 200 square miles, and you're building a 10,000-foot runway on it, what is that? That's an Air Force base, is what it is. They may have more runways that aren't as long, I don't know. But when you can fly that kind of equipment in to the United States and land on your own land, you have an Air Force base. And nobody in Washington is doing a thing about it. Do they know about it? Of course they do. They couldn't not. Now, we've heard long ago that the Chinese controlled the port of Long Beach. They ran it. They could smuggle in anything they wanted to in those containers, and I'm sure have. Trump apparently put an end to that and took them out of control, but now they'll have this Air Force base to haul stuff into. And not only that, they have also taken over the port of Vancouver 
in British Columbia, and they are allowed to bring anything basically into Canada that they want to. Trudeau is a dyed-in-the-wool communist. And recently they granted the Chinese the power to move their troops anywhere in Canada they want to to protect Chinese interests in Canada, Chinese-owned facilities and so on. Do you think that they might amass on our northern border? This thing is coming together pretty fast, pretty fast. And with these droughts, you can expect shortages in some foods, I think, fairly quickly. If they can't grow it in California, uh, and you've also got drought through some major portions of the Middle West, and floods in some places in the south. Either way, you can't grow crops and you don't have anything to eat. So expect, I think, attacks on our infrastructure through the rest of this year. Um, what happens to this country if they suddenly shut the Internet down? Just that one thing. It would grind to a halt in less than an hour. Nearly every transaction in this country is made via the Internet. You can't use a credit card anymore without an Internet connection. Used to, they had these little machines you could stick it in, and you could call in and get it approved. Now you put your card in, and it goes by Internet to wherever it goes and whatever bank or and approves the transaction. You wouldn't be able to buy and sell without the Internet. Banks would shut down. Everything they do is by Internet. Trucks would shut down. The trucking companies control their trucks and where they go and where they are by Internet. Your cell phones wouldn't work without Internet. If I get out of Internet range, I can't use mine today. And if it shuts down, that's it. No more phone calls, no more texts. No more nothing. Can they do that? That'd take them maybe a minute. <laughs> you know, click, 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 click. It's all off. Now, I don't know that they will, but they might shut it down here for a while and then shut it down there for a while and somewhere else and cause mayhem here and there. Same with the electric grid. They can shut down whatever parts they want and leave it for as long as they want. And they've done it a few times, trying it out. Well, now they're apparently going to go after it uh, more and more. Uh, I think it was yesterday. Another black man was shot up at Minneapolis only a few blocks from where George Floyd was killed. And there are, the BLM is already having riots up there. So I think it's going to be a long, hot summer. Uh, be prepared, be ready. Well, enough of that. Let's go back to the book of Mark. We were in chapter 13 down to verse 21 last week. I want to continue some of the thought that is here. And based on the things that we just discussed, uh, I think there's 
great need to be aware of what is going on and what God says to his people about the times that we are in. It's very important information for us to think about, very timely at this point. Uh, We just read that he would shorten the days of these prophecies or no flesh would be saved. I don't know whether that means by a day or two or a week or a month. It won't be a very long uh, uh, cut, perhaps, because there are prophecies that have to be fulfilled specifically. And he may cut it short at the very end, lest no flesh truly be saved. I would think that would be at the end of the seven last plagues, when certainly the danger of total annihilation is there. And he may come back, shorten his honeymoon a little bit, and come back to stop it. Anyway, he says in verse 21, And then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. Now, does that mean that we can't know pretty close to what is going to happen in the true Christ? I don't think so, because he gives us quite a few clues and some signs. And he's even talking about it here, and will, as we continue this context, that we are to be aware. Now, what we have to worry about is false Christ. And he's already mentioned that. Because there is an Antichrist coming. And the whole world, essentially, is going to accept him as Christ. Now, if you get pulled into that, you're in serious trouble. So we have to know the true Christ by his works, by his word, by his prophecies, by whatever indications in Scripture he gives us, and in our close personal communication with him through prayer and study, we have to be very aware. So there will be false Christs and false prophets who will arise. And they'll say, this is it, this is him. So be aware that this is going to happen. Now, I've already, even in my lifetime, encountered one or two people who have said, I am Christ, or I am Jesus. I can think of two or three people in a couple of names, even. And... By looking at their fruits and by looking at their lives, I said, don't think so. Sorry, uh, let's move on here. Garner Ted had somebody march into his office one day and say, I am Jesus Christ. And he said, no, you're not. Get out of here. (laughs) And he had several iterations of the two witnesses come there. And I've met, I don't know, probably a dozen or two of the two witnesses myself in my life. Uh, So, false Christ, false witnesses, false preachers, they're all over the place. How do you know the difference? Well, the Apostle John said it pretty well. If they come and bring not this doctrine, don't receive them into your house. That includes your mind, the temple of God's Spirit, nor say, 
God be with you, or Godspeed. You don't send them away happily. You let them know you are not interested at all. If any man comes and doesn't keep the Sabbath, doesn't keep God's holy days as intended, doesn't understand when the day the Sabbath even begins, there are several different groups now that go morning to morning. That means they keep half a Sabbath from Saturday morning till Sunday morning. Half the seventh day of the week and half the first day of the week. Uh, People like that crop up sometimes. What's the truth? Well, he says it seven times in Genesis 1. The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. Get it yet? The evening and the morning were the third day. He just keeps on. That is the cycle that he set up. It doesn't say the morning and the evening were the first day. At all. And then when you get to Numbers and it tells you how to keep the Day of Atonement, it says keep your Sabbath from evening to evening. How plain can it get? But they read some obscure scriptures that talk about people beginning their day in the morning. Well, yeah, that's when you begin your work day unless you're on the mid the alley shift. That's generally when the work day begins. But God doesn't see it that way. He likes us at the very beginning of the day to have an opportunity to rest, to relax, to pray, to study, to meditate, to prepare for the work part of the day. So he gives you at the beginning of the day space and opportunity to rest and prepare for your work cycle. That's the way he does it. But people don't read where it says, keep the Sabbath from evening to evening and believe it. They get these obscure things that don't count and don't define it, if you will. So if they bring these oddball doctrines that don't come from the Scriptures don't have anything to do with them. Now, you were grounded enough in the basics from worldwide and have been regrounded here and even given more information about true doctrine than you had before. So you have a pretty good wealth of knowledge there to analyze somebody by. See a Sunday keeper? Out the door immediately. That's the first test. It's a sign between God and his people. If they're keeping part of Saturday and part of Sunday, they're not of God. Period. They're not keeping the sign of God. The whole Sabbath. Easily the second test could be the holy days. And even the calendar to one degree or another. Now, I know there are a lot of people out there who are part of the remnant who are still not keeping the correct calendar. But you'll find in Zechariah 4 that they have been church members all along, 
most of them, nearly all of them, through worldwide to one degree or another, because it is a remnant of what was, not a bunch of people from all over the world that were involved. A remnant is what's left, not what you gather up from nowhere or anywhere. I said that last week, but it's on my mind. So, what do the two witnesses do? Zechariah 4. It says that they're giving oil to all seven lamps. There will be people from all seven of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 who will gather from the churches of God, not from the Methodists and the Baptists and the Flat Earthers or whoever else they are, Quakers or Amish, be from those who were called, many are chosen. Called to God is where they'll come from. But they won't have all the knowledge that we have been accumulating uh, beyond worldwide since 96, the additional things that we've learned, they will not have been taught. So, they have to be taught when they arrive. Now, God knows which of them are faithful and true and trying to obey Him and not having certain knowledge yet, okay? That doesn't make them unfaithful or not able to come and be taught. They're still going to basically know the truth. But these antichrists we're talking about think the law is done away, you're supposed to keep Sunday or Friday or something apart from the truth of the Bible. Those you can winnow out pretty quickly. If they're part of the church of God or have been in the past, you would have trouble making that judgment because you don't know their minds and their hearts like God does, and therefore it isn't critical that they've learned this, this, and this, and that they're up to date on everything, because they won't be. That's why they have to have that teaching once they arrive, as Zechariah 4 easily points out. So for us, we need to be looking for essentially true basic doctrine, if you will. And if we don't see that, don't give it the time of day. I'm amazed, as I've learned over the years, how many people who are part of the Church of God who still listen to Sunday preachers. Despite John saying very clearly not to allow them in your house. Radio, tele they don't have to have their body in there. Radio and television allows them in. Or whatever. Internet. But it's the principle. Don't listen to those who don't bring the truth. Didn't we face a crisis when the Tkachas departed from the truth and started keeping Sunday and Christmas and Easter and going right back to Protestantism? And some people says, oh, well, I learned a long time ago this is the true church. And so... Since this is the true church, this must be okay. And they went right along with it. No. When they depart from the truth, it isn't the true church anymore. It's the evangelical soap opera of whatever they called it. It's not godly anymore. And God departed from it. If I saw 
some of those people that are part of that today and they wanted to talk to me, I'd say, go away. I don't need that. You're, you're not of God anymore. Forget it. So they'll arise. And they will do what? Show signs and wonders. Absolute miracles. Now God says His people will do signs and wonders and miracles. And this says that these false Christs will do the same. You can't go entirely by any means by the signs and wonders and miracles. If you let that grab you, you can go the wrong way very easily. Can Satan do signs and wonders? Absolutely. What about Pharaoh and Moses, the magicians of Pharaoh? Didn't they duplicate or even one-up Moses from time as they went through that whole thing? I created a snake. Okay, they created a snake too. Turned the rod into a snake. Moses' snakes ate their snakes. Well, God's going to win in the long run. But doesn't it say of the beast and the false prophet there in Revelation 17, 18, 17, I think, 16, wherever it is, that he'll do great signs and wonders as the Antichrist, as the, the false Christ, the biggie one, will do lying signs and wonders, and it will deceive the whole world. There are only a few people, a few thousand actually, when it's all said and done, who will go by the true doctrine, and when they see signs and wonders done by those from God, not on their own, but from God, doing signs and wonders from God, the key will be doctrine, not the sign and the wonder. The sign and the wonder is only from God if the man himself is from God. And the the way you know that is, does he teach the true doctrines of God? That's what John was clearly saying there. They come and bring not this doctrine, forget it. And the false Christ won't bring this doctrine. I think the Antichrist will probably be a Sunday keeper. That's the way it appears. Certainly won't have the sign of God's Sabbath. And you know enough basic doctrine, you should be able to figure it out very quickly. But what does he say? False Christs and false prophets shall rise. This, this is a fact. This is going to happen. And shall sow signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. Matthew puts it the very elect. They're going to be so powerful so convincing that it would be possible almost to deceive the very elect. So there are going to be great signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Absolute healings, all kinds of things that will occur. False signs and wonders, maybe for the most part. 
But Satan is powerful and he can do a lot of things. So, have it printed indelibly in your mind that they had better be bringing the truth, the doctrines, the teachings of this book of God. Otherwise, you could easily be deceived. But take you heed. Listen up. Pay attention here. Behold, I have foretold you all things. He says to the disciples there, I've told you this, so pay attention to what I said. And here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, reading it and paying attention to what he said. Because these things are very, very close to happening before our very eyes. Very, very close. But in those days, after that tribulation, now some think that the tribulation has already started. No, it hasn't. The tribulation is defined in Luke as uh, the times of the Gentiles, 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days. The book of Revelation uses all three to show the period of the great tribulation. That's those three and a half years that the two witnesses preach. Well, they haven't started yet. So if they haven't started yet, traveling all around the world and being persecuted and hated of all nations, then the times of the Gentiles hasn't started. So the tribulation has to occur, and after that three and a half years, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. The stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. So that is the beginning then of the day of the Lord. Uh, Matthew puts it immediately after the tribulation of those days, this will occur. And here he says, he doesn't single it out quite as specifically, but it's after that tribulation when God begins to show his wrath. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now, if you'll recall in the book of Haggai, you get to the very end of the second chapter, and it says there that he'll make Zerubbabel a signet or a signal or a flag of him, and that he will shake the heavens and the earth at that time. Now, he said before that, yet a little while and I will shake them during the time of the building of the temple. And then right at the end, he says, I'll make Zerubbabel a signet, and then I am going to do the shaking. Well, what's Zerubbabel going to be doing up until the time that the shaking starts? He's going to be preaching the gospel around the world as a witness for three and a half years. And when that is finished... The body of work that he has done is going to be a flag from God that the day of the Lord has come. And Christ says there in Revelation 11 that when the two witnesses are killed in the streets of Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem, the three days later, he's coming back. So 
that is going to be accompanied by an awful lot of thunder and lightning and heavenly signs and darkness and so on. It became pitch black at the time of his crucifixion and resurrection in Jerusalem. There was a sign given there. And it's going to all be done again in far more dramatic fashion than it was then. So, we're going to have three and a half years of terrible tribulation, and then God himself is going to intervene and stop the time that the Gentiles have to rule on this earth. And they'll see him coming. Well, that's at the end of the three and a half years plus three and a half days. There's three days of three and a half. I always get that mixed up in Revelation 11. I'll review it so I can forget it again. After three days and a half, yeah, same as Jonah, uh, no, same as Christ was dead was three and a half days. No, three days. Three and a half days is the time of their preaching. A day is as a year. So they'll be dead a, a day for that three and a half years of preaching. Three and a half days. That's, that's where that fits in. Got to get all the details right. Yeah, Noah, I'm not Noah, uh, Jonah was three days and three nights, and Christ was three days and three nights. Verse 27, And then he shall send his angels, and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. So he's going to gather his elect, 144,000, who are the first fruits, and they will rise to meet him in the air and marry him on the Father's throne. Then comes the seven last plagues of the day of the Lord, the day or the year of the Lord, while the bride is getting acquainted with her husband and learning her job, and they're having a one-year honeymoon. Uh, the seven last plagues will be raging down here and would end up with total annihilation of everyone on earth if he didn't cut it a little short. That's the time in the Bible that shows he might cut short. It doesn't say the tribulation will be cut short or the preaching of the witnesses. Uh, the, the earth is not in danger <coughs> of total depopulation at that time. The only time it is in danger of total loss of life is the seven last plagues, which go on for about a year. So if he's cutting anything short, it appears to me that that's what it would be. So that he saves about a hundred million, as Daniel seems to indicate, out of nearly eight billion today. That's all that will survive. And if he didn't cut it short, even they wouldn't make it. It's going to be that bad. So he'll gather his righteous out of the grave and off the ground. So now, verse 28... Learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. We've been watching this spring, and trees have been coming to life. They've been putting out buds and then leaves, and still are, and summer is very near. 
fact, it felt yesterday and today like it's already here, <laughs> at least in this country. But it doesn't really occur until June 21st uh, is the official time that summer begins. But when you see those leaves coming on, you know that spring is already here and summer isn't far away. So he says, I want you to learn something from this. Be instructed by this. You don't see buds coming out in December. It's, you know, there are certain things you have to see happening so that you know that summer is near. And when you see certain things happening, you know that all these things he's talking about is near. Until you see them, you don't have to be too concerned about it. But when you see them, you better wake up. Take heed. When it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you, in like manner, when you shall see these things come to pass, know that it is near even at the very door. It's right there on the porch at the door. So what are we to do? We're to read Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and other scriptures. And be aware of what he says is going to be happening. And then you know it is near. And that it's time to be very vigilant. Then he says, Truly I say to you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Now, 50 years ago, I didn't really grasp the meaning of that verse. This generation, some have thought that, well, that was referring to the generation when the disciples were. Well, they died, and it didn't happen. It obviously wasn't that generation. So then it's inconclusive to scholars which generation you're talking about. Well, I think it should be obvious that he's talking about the generation that is there when these things begin to come to pass. Now, he gives us a clue in the book of Haggai, speaking of the church, the former temple, Worldwide Church of God. It isn't anything else. It's the Worldwide Church of God, which turned out to be Sardis and died. But it was the vehicle through whom God called many people. And then it died, and those people were scattered, spewed out of God's mouth. And now he is going to begin to gather. But it is that generation of people that were called here at the end through him that will not die out. Now, most of those people that were called back then are getting pretty old. The biggest calling came in the 60s, early 70s. And if you were 20 in 1960, you'd be, what, 80 today. And nearing the end of this physical life. So, that generation will not die out. The one that God called under him, because it is the remnant of those people who build the latter temple... 
and their leaders who preached the last three and a half years. The gospel around the world is a witness. Then the end comes. Hasn't happened yet. We thought Herbert Armstrong was that figure. We didn't realize how far away it still was. And he thought he was fulfilling Matthew twenty four fourteen. Preach the gospel around the world, and then the end will come. And he told me in 1981, from his own mouth, I am Zerubbabel. And I think he was a minor type of Zerubbabel, but he wasn't the final one. And it wasn't the three and a half years that this is talking about. Types come and go through the Bible, but the end time one is the clearest, the strongest, the most dramatic, the final fulfillment of those things. Uh, John the Baptist came as a type of Elijah. But it says there will be another at the end. So that's at least three who have done some work in that field. That's the way God has set it up. So when he says this generation shall not pass, there are going to be men old enough to have seen the former temple, Worldwide Church of God, at its best, and I don't think that was in 1986. From my viewpoint, I was 20 years old and uh, 54. No, 64. 64, I was in college. And to me, looking at the student body and the church as a whole, through 20-year-old eyes, that's the age of accountability in God's uh, estimation. You're not an adult at 18. You're not an adult at 21. You're an adult at 20, according to Scripture. Your parents are responsible for you until you're 20. You 18-year-olds are wrong. Until you're 20. And then you're considered an adult and responsible for yourself, and your parents no longer hold any guilt or responsibility for what you do after that. You're, that's between you and God after 20. They are responsible to whatever degree they can be until then. So from my 20-year-old eyes in 1964, I think I saw the church beginning to decline in about 65, 66. I saw it in the student body. The students weren't quite as committed, quite as dedicated, quite as focused on the work of God as they had been, let's say, the first two years I was in college. It, it began to kind of weaken a bit. And I saw it in the churches, and you had rebellion in the ministry and so on. So it had begun a decline. So if you saw worldwide at its best, and somebody said they thought 1969 was the turning point. And that might well be, because that was the last time when our scholars, including Herman Hay, examined the Hebrew calendar and rejected going to a heavenly bodies calendar and continued with the Hebrew calendar. It was 1969. And it did seem to decline somewhere in that 65, 66 to 69, 
I mean, you can't put your finger on it. I'm just, just little clues I saw in the student body and maybe in myself even at that time. But it could have been 69. Uh, God says he hates our feast days in Isaiah 1. And when we decided to keep doing the Jewish calendar, we were rejecting God's heavenly calendar. And that may have become the decline. So up till that time, if that be the case, uh, you would have to say that it was worldwide at its best because the decline and the rebellion and the ministry and, and all that stuff started and the state of California came in in 79 and by the time Herbert Armstrong died in 86, he had recognized that it was pretty well all over. So it had died. And the Tkachas are the ones that plunged the fatal knife in to finish it off. So, back to the point. There have to be people who saw it at its best and then compare the latter temple at its best and show that the latter is far superior to the former. That's why we got spewed out, is so that we would straighten up, straighten out, turn to God with zeal and energy and dedication and commitment that we had previously lacked. So that we can construct a temple that is superior, uh, spiritually superior to that which was and ultimately died. This one has to be superior in every way and continue on until the first resurrection and those people rise to meet Christ in the air. So it has to be, you have to be, I have to be, we all have to be spiritually in better condition than we were. Than we were as members of Worldwide for all those years in which we were self-righteous about being the only true church on earth, self-righteousness has to go away. And better than we were when we got spewed out because he couldn't stand the taste of us in his mouth. we got to do better than that. We have to be spiritually closer to God than that. And be more obedient than we were then. We have to grow and to overcome and to be as he wants us to be. So we're not in competition with ourselves from the past. We are simply trying to please God and be as much like him as we can from today forward. And tonight when the sun goes down, you did the best you could today and it's past. And it won't do any good to look back except perhaps pleadingly and say, wow, I wish I hadn't said that or done that, or I wish I had done this and this. You might analyze the day at the end of the day when the sun goes down and give yourself some kind of a score and then reaffirm that tomorrow needs to be better and keep moving forward and working on doing better each day. Now, I don't care how better we do, to use bad grammar. We can't earn salvation. 
You cannot, by the good works that you do, earn salvation. It is impossible because one sin can keep you from eternal life. The wages of one sin is death. Therefore, since we do continue to commit some sin, and since we continue not to do perfect works, we're doomed. If that's what you base salvation on. We're all going into the lake of fire, if that's what you're depending on. You'd better to be depending on faith in the grace, the unmerited pardon of God, who loves you enough that if you work at not sinning, he's going to make up the difference and say, I forgive you of when you did, I'm going to accept you. It is by his grace and forgiveness and love that we make it into the kingdom, not because we were so good. Because we can only get so good. <laughs> and we're not ever going to get any better than that so good, however good it is. Doesn't mean we don't work at being like God. But the Pharisees basically depended on their good works and their commandment keeping to enter into life. And Christ told them, that doesn't cut it whatsoever. And if you don't exceed that which they were, you won't be there either. And that's exactly what they were depending on was their commitment to the law and their good works. You can do good works from now on, but if you have one sin on your record, you're done. That's why we had a Savior whose life was worth more than all of ours, whose righteousness was worth more than all our sins, and they can all be done away with through his sacrifice in life. Now, were we created unto good works? Yes, we were. Should we do good works? Yes, we should. But they're not going to give you salvation. <clears throat> They'll give you good favor. They'll please God if they're done without your left hand knowing what your right hand is doing and not in self-righteousness and patting yourself on your back and tooting your own horn. If they're done out of a pure heart motivated by the Spirit of God, then he will have a pleasant attitude toward you. And that will help ensure that you're one of those that he says, yeah, I want you. I, wouldn't it be nice, with every one of us here, if it came time to decide who gets the crown and who doesn't, who sings the new song and who doesn't, he'd look at all of us and say, yeah! I want those. They've been working. They've been trying. They're trying to please me. They're trying to be like me. Yeah, they fail. They make mistakes. They leave things out. They goof up. But they're really working at it. Yeah, I want them. I'd much rather him have that attitude toward me, toward you, than one of those things where he says... Oh my, decisions, decisions. This is a tough one. Well, you're kind of doing this, but ooh, look at that. What am I going to do?
I don't want him to be in that position when he analyzes me and when he analyzes you. I, I want to put it where he's... Oh, that one's in. No question. There's one I want. Can we put ourselves in that position? I think by the end of his lifetime, Paul had actually come to that point where he felt that after killing Christians and being diametrically against God and against his people, he turned it clear around and then he fought himself for years. And even said, after having been an apostle for many years, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. Sin of commission and omission. He was still fighting it. But then some years went on, and he kept fighting. And when he got just about the end, he said, I've finished the course, I've run the race, I know there's a crown set up for me in heaven. That makes me want to just sit here and cry. Because after all he'd been through and all the things he had done, calling himself the chief of sinners, he finally came to the place where he said, I think I've overcome enough, I've changed enough, that I'm a whole lot more like God than I used to be. And I know that I've been pleasing him to whatever degree these last years, and I've finished it. I know he feels toward me that he wants me in his kingdom. He finally had that confidence, which he did not show before. Didn't show it in his writing before. But he finally did. Wouldn't it be nice for us to overcome some things, to change some things we might have fought all our lives, some attitudes, some approaches, some sins, some weaknesses, and we fight those things and we struggle through them and we win over them to where we can finally say, yeah, I, I, I've done enough that I think he's going to be pleased with me. Now, Paul worked to that point. So it's not sacrilegious for us to get toward that point. On the other hand, it's really, really dangerous to say, well, I've been in the church for three years now. I've been keeping the feast and the Sabbath. I got her made, baby. I've been doing good works. Oh, I've been visiting the widows and I've been fixing this and doing that for so-and-so. I'm okay. I'm sure God is so happy with me. Self-righteousness is a very, very dangerous and deep ditch. And we have all, without exception, operated off of a certain level of self-righteousness. Now, it can be lesser or greater depending on the person, but self-righteousness is our greatest, biggest, most common sin for every last one of us. Self-righteousness puts you ahead of God, is what it does. How do I mean that? Anytime 
we want to think something or do something that is against any of God's rules or principles, then we are allowing ourselves to break his way of life. His way of life is what it's all about. There is nothing else. And when we think a human or satanic thought, let it percolate in our mind, or maybe go and actually sin, not with just our mind and our eye, but our hand, then we have put ourselves ahead of God's law, and He is His law. Love is what the law is. God is both love and law. He's all the above. So anytime we go outside His law, we have put ourselves apart from Him, and in that sense, above Him. Because what I want to think and what I want to do is more important to me right now than God is and His Word is. It's more important to me right now. Doesn't that put you into idolatry? But anything is more important than God and His way of life. That is idolatry. And you will find a way to justify it and that is self-righteousness. I am a righteous apart from God and His law, is what it means. So if you say you're not self-righteous, that means that you never do anything that is contrary to God's way of thinking. You're self-righteous. I'm self-righteous. We all idolize ourselves to one degree or another at one time or another. We put what we want ahead of what God is. And that is idolatry. It's covetousness, really. When you desire something that is ungodly, you are having an inordinate desire, which is what covetousness is. And Colossians says, covetousness then any desire apart from God's way is idolatry. The last commandment reflects the first commandment. So if you say you're not self-righteous, a loon would have to do some catching up to be as crazy as you are. It affects us all. And God hates idolatry and self-righteousness above anything else. Because it always is something that is a little or a lot contrary to him. Now, what do we do? We sometimes judge our actions based on our own self-justification meter, if you will. Well, this isn't really a sin. This isn't a bad sin. Often we use lies to illustrate this, a little white lie or a great big black lie. So there's a gradation there that we put on it to determine whether we are a sinner or not. And, and if it's just a little white lie, then we're, we're not much of a sinner. But we're okay. We, we can justify certain things. Of course, you, then there's a whole other subject about what is a lie and what isn't. Christ did not tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth all the time. 
He didn't. He frequently didn't tell the whole truth. He spoke in parables so they would not understand the truth and said so. Now, he wasn't lying with what he said. He just only went so far and then didn't tell them the rest. And that's legal. That's Christ-like. You don't have to tell everything you know. In fact, you're told not to tell everything you know. Because he says, if you know evil... You're supposed to not talk about it. Doesn't he tell us that? Yeah. We're not supposed to spread evil. So-and-so did such and so. Oh, he did. Oh, he really did he? Did he do this too? Yeah, I must have done that as well. And by the time you get through three people, that's the blackest sinner on earth. Because we imagine evil. So Christ tells us, Speak no evil. Speak no evil things. Find good. And speak the good about the person. I don't care who they are. If you work at it hard enough, I'll bet you can find something good about anyone. Something good about them. Say that. Don't say evil. It's against Scripture. It's against God. We are supposed to speak no evil. So if you think you're righteous and you speak evil, you're speaking contrary to God. That makes you an idolater and self-righteous. Just that easily. No. He says when you see these things happening, and I got into this from that, know the end is near, but also realize that there have to be people around who are old enough to have seen that which was inferior to that which is superior and be able to make that judgment. So this thing has to happen in our lifetimes collectively here. Some of you younger ones weren't called that early and, and you do not have that memory bank. Some of you are old enough to have that memory bank. But that number of people is shrinking very rapidly. So this thing has to happen pretty quick for to be old men who can say, I saw that, and now I see this. So just from that standpoint alone, we know, we know summer is nigh. <laughs> This is not overtime. We discussed that. We're nearly done with this chapter. This generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. That doesn't mean heaven and earth are going to pass away. It means that before his words pass away, that would happen. That's how strong his word is. And that's why I spent a little time going through this thing about our righteousness, our self-righteousness, how we need to be superior spiritually to what we were and what the church was and be something that could be compared and say, oh yeah, they're doing better now than they were then. 
And that is the assessment that I would like to have the Father and the Son have. You know, I've put these people, at least since 1986, through some pretty tough times. And today, they're spiritually stronger and better off than they were back then. And he can see progress. And he wants old men to see that progress, even as he also sees it. You think he can't see it? If old men can see it, God can sure see it. That's what he's looking for. He's been wanting to turn his face back to us in grace and mercy and love, forgiveness. That's what he's been wanting to do through this whole Laodicean period. What's it going to take for him to turn his face back to us and smile on us and bless us? Is it going to be all our good works? No. Because we're still far from perfect, are we not? We're still a long ways from being like God. What it is going to take for him to turn and smile on us is his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace, unmerited pardon, that we have at least made progress. We have overcome and grown some. We're more zealous, more committed, more dedicated than we were before. And he'll see some improvement, and he'll make up for the rest of that with his mercy, grace, love, and forgiveness. And when we're forgiven, it says in one day, there, right at the very end of Zechariah 3, this will happen in one day. He'll say, okay, I'm going to extend mercy and forgiveness so that even though they're not perfect yet, there is no sin there. And I can smile at that condition of no sin. So I will turn and bless them. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on His forgiveness and love and mercy is what it depends on. But our dedication and our love to him will help him come to the point he's willing to do that in one day. Take you heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. You have the signs, you have the signals, you know pretty close, but you don't know exactly. So be awake and be aware. Don't we know it's pretty close? I think by now we really ought to. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. He didn't say when he was coming back, but he will. He'll appear and... Are all the servants sitting under a shade tree saying, Oh, he's not come yet. I don't know when he's coming. Watch you, therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes, at evening or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping on the watch. And watch, I say to you. I say to all, watch. 
That means be awake, be alert, be vigilant, be aware. Know what's going on. Watch for the signs of the fig leaves. Watch what God does. Be very aware of prophecy. Be very aware of the conditions here at the end. That's why I took time at the first today to mention a few things that are going on. There's a whole lot more. But we see these things and we know this is getting close. If our government is allowing Air Force bases to be built within our borders, that wouldn't have happened 50, 60 years ago. And now it's happening with impunity. And we know the attack is not far off. So watch. Pray always. Be aware. Be the kind of servant that Christ is looking for when he returns. One that knows what's going on and is doing his job the best way he can possibly do it. That's what all these servants and porters and so on were supposed to do is work at their job, whether he was there or not. Get your job done and watch, because you don't know for sure when you're going to be called into account.